So welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, which forms part of the LSE Festival, Shape the World, which began on Monday the 2nd and runs through to tomorrow, Saturday the 7th, as part of a whole year of activities at LSE, exploring how social science can tackle global issues. Um, my name is Laura Brown, and I am a postdoctoral fellow at the International Development Department here, where I research environmental effects on women's health. And I am very pleased to be here to welcome the following speakers to the LSE this evening for this Global Health Initiative event. So on my left, we have Karina Hirsch, who is an advocacy and projects manager at the Margaret Pike Trust, where she is committed to improving the status of women and girls. Next, we have um, Wendy Siegel, who is Professor of Gender and Family Studies at the Department of Gender Studies here at LSE, where she works on a variety of issues relating to families and family policy in historical and contemporary societies. Next, we have Julia Corwin, an Assistant Professor in Environment at the Department of Geography and Environment here at LSE again, where her work focuses on the politics of global environmental governance and its relationship to the informal economy and global trade. And last but not least, we have Yamini Mishra, the Director of Gender, Sexuality and Identity at Amnesty International, where she provides leadership and vision to the world's largest human rights movement on gender and discrimination. So today, in the Planet Population and Rights panel, we will be confronting the potential tensions but also the positive symbioses in the interlinked areas of environment, demography and human rights. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event, which should be up there, um, and maybe they're not, but it's Shape the World and LSE Festival. And I would also ask you to please put your phones on silent so that it does not disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast should we not have any technical difficulties. So just to explain how we're going to um, run this, it's going to be 40 to 45 minutes of panel discussion. If you have any questions, please hold on to them because after that 40 to 45 minutes, you'll have 15 to 20 minutes to direct your questions to the panel. Okay. So... Let's start with our first question, which is, is reducing population growth necessary to address the climate emergency? I'm wondering if we can start with your perspective, Karina. Yeah, thank you, Laura, and thank you for having um, the Margaret Pike Trust and myself representing the Margaret Pike Trust here, second year running. Um, and thank you for the question. So, First of all, we don't know what the population is going to be in 2050. Often we look at the newspaper and it says the population will be 9.7 or 9.8 billion in 2050. But we don't know that. We do not know what population trajectory we are going to be on. A large part of that determinant or what will determine the future population is actually the provision of reproductive health services today and between today and 2050. So if we look at what that means, we know that today, in developing countries alone, there are 232 million women and girls who do not have access to the reproductive health services that they would like. So that's just in the developing countries alone. That doesn't include the developed countries. But if you know about the rates of unintended pregnancies in some developed countries like the U.S., where up to 40% of pregnancies are unintended, you can see that the issue of barriers to family planning, barriers to wider reproductive health services, are huge. Those can be financial, again, if you think of the U.S. They can be social, 
people, people's elders or partners not allowing them to have access to the services, they can be physical. Um, some of the programs that the organization I work for, the Margaret Pike Trust, runs, uh, we work in places where the average walk to the nearest clinic is four hours. So you start seeing what barriers to family planning means and how they are very, very real. So the issue is not population. The issue is barriers to family planning. And that is about granting people access to health care services that they want, because the opposite of barriers to family planning is health care. So I think that's very, that's difficult to argue with. And that's not about instrumentalizing um, women and girls' lives or their health. That is about responding to their need. And if by responding to their needs and to their desires, you can also have a ripple effect on the environment, albeit a very powerful one, then that is not anything negative. So these are the kinds of connections that are starting to be made um, in, many, in many forums. Um, one recent one is a research project called Project Drawdown, which is a group of uh, leading scientists based um, in the U.S., and actually they've found that granting girls access to education and reproductive health services, including family planning, is one of the most powerful things that can be done to address climate change. So that is a link that's starting to be made. That's starting to be made by other environmental bodies, such as UNEP. Their most recent Global Environmental Outlook mentions the importance of reproductive health. Uh, national biodiversity strategies and action plans start to recognize the importance of family planning. So if we respond to women and girls' needs, their need and their right to education, and their need and their right to have control over their bodies, choose if, when, how many children they would like to have, and also have a positive effect on the conservation of biodiversity, then it is a win-win for human health and for planetary health. Thank you, Karina. Yamini, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Um, I think this uh, argument that is the sheer number of people on this planet which is causing climate crisis um, is misleading, and I have several reasons for saying so. First, um, let's uh, address the population side of the argument. It is not as though the world population will continue to grow at an, exponentially, at, at an exponential rate forever into the future. Yes, right now we are at 7.7 .7 billion. By 2050, we would reach 7.9 billion. But by 2100, the global population would have reached its peak and stabilized at 11 million. Uh, sorry, at 11 billion. So, the population growth of actually is the theory of demographic transition that teaches us that countries transition from high birth rate, high death rate countries to low birth rate, low death rate countries when they have access to a certain level of technology, a certain level of economic development, etc. So these are important points that we need to consider. Just one more point on that. It is true that the hotspots of population growth are unevenly distributed, uh, that these are seen mostly in, in the poorer countries, but it's also important to remember that an average uh, life expectancy, the life expectancy in poorer countries is almost seven years less than the global average. So people here are also living much less so just to address the population side of the argument. Now, the second argument is that, yes, reducing consumption is essential, uh, but people do not consume equally. And there's an Oxfam study that has been done recently 
which shows that an average Brit person uh, in one uh, in the first two years, uh, first two weeks of a year, consumes more and emits more carbon dioxide than an African would in the entire course of the year. So, uh, and then there are other studies which basically show that uh, bottom 50% of the population contributes to 10% of the emissions, and top 10% of the population contributes to 50% of the emissions. And therefore, the point that I'm trying to make is. If you make this argument that population growth is uh, contributing to climate, is, is the major trigger for climate change, uh, then by default we would be saying that countries with a higher rate of growth of population have a larger role to play, but actually these countries have contributed the least to the crisis and are affected the worst. So we have to keep in mind these dynamics. And just the last point, and I'll stop here, um, I think we also need to consider the disproportionate influence of corporates. So uh, top 20 fossil fuel companies, and just look at this statistic, top 20 fossil fuel companies alone emit one-third of the global emissions. Uh, then there are the extractive industries. 14 out of 15 extractive industries in South Africa do not meet the pollution standards. And really the elephant in the room which we have to address, which is the banks which are financing this, right? So uh, the high street banks, the Wall Street uh, financial companies, which are actually financing the climate crisis by investing in fossil fuel assets. A recent study actually showed that since the Paris Agreement, uh, the, the banks, the, the, the five or ten important banks globally, they have increased their holding of fossil fuel assets. So really they're making a quick buck out of this, which is financing the climate crisis. So my argument is that it is not actually the numbers which are uh, creating the crisis. It is global, global inequalities which is driving the crisis. It is the excessive an unsustainable level of consumption, and it is the sheer corporate greed because corporates are making these conscious choices of financing and making a quick buck out of the fossil fuel companies. And I just want to end with one last point. I began by saying that this argument is misleading. I also want to say that this argument is very risky because we risk resurrecting population control policies which have played havoc in large parts of the developing countries. These policies are known to be anti-women, anti-poor, so I'm just very worried that uh, such an argument needs to be scrutinized from a human rights and ethical point of view as well. Okay, thank you, Yamini. Wendy, did you want to add something there? Um, Yamini just touched on what I was going to say at the very end, mm -hmm. but just to maybe restate it very briefly, one of my concerns about win-win synergy arguments is that it actually concedes argumentative territory. So if women's reproductive rights get met and they're having too many children, we've already conceded the territory that that is a variable that we should talk about in connection to climate change. The fact of the matter is the places in the world that have the highest rates of population growth now have the lowest rates of resource consumption. And we've done the accounting so that much of what we consume here, the um, carbon emissions are accounted for where they're produced, not where they're consumed, which makes it even more misleading. So maybe what we need to do is think about taking population away from any discussion of climate and focus much more on um, consumption, and reducing consumption and talk about reproductive rights separately rather than make it something that could potentially turn against us. Okay, thank you. Okay, with that caveat, to the extent that we do want to re uh, reduce population growth, why is this potentially problematic for reproductive rights? Um, Yamini, did you want to say something briefly on yeah, that? Just to say that uh, this is so because we have to recognize that there is a 
There is a very painful legacy of coercive population control policies. This has led to policies of forced sterilizations in India and other parts of the world. It has resulted in the uh, one-child norm in China. Uh, and these policies have proven to be ineffective and largely ineffective, and these policies have also have also resulted in multiple human rights violations. So I just want to say that coercive population control, actually it was way back in, when was the Cairo thing? Uh, 1994. It was way back in 1994 with the ICPD, uh, the International Conference on Population and Development, where there was a clear understanding that we are not going to go down this road, but we are going to go to, for a framework, a rights-based approach towards women's sexual and reproductive health. So I just want to say that of population policies is something we just cannot afford to go back on. Uh, just one more, a couple of more points. Um, the human rights approach here would be uh, one which uh, respects women's uh, uh, reproductive autonomy and justice. Uh, we want governments to provide sexual and reproductive health services, but it has to be done in a way which respects women's dignity and autonomy. And most importantly, it's very important for women to have a say over these decisions. If they don't have control over these, their bodies, how will they make these decisions? And the very good example that we have from Malawi, and this is to respond to the first point, uh, Malawi was seen as a high birth rate uh, um, and very high birth rate and high climate change hotspot uh, and the, the experience there has shown us that mere provision of contraceptives oftentimes is not enough unless and until you address some of the underlying factors which, which inhibit women to be able to take these decisions, right? So just provision of contraceptives in and of itself may not be sufficient unless and until women have the capacity to take these decisions. So what I'm trying to say is that you have to invest in gender uh, equitable policies. You have to invest in ensuring that women have these decision-making powers, otherwise we're going nowhere. And just one last point and I'll stop here. I also wanted to put <laughs> table this very important issue of uh, uh, big uh, pharma companies entering into these billion do dollar contracts with many richer countries because richer countries need to meet their aid target. Uh, and then there's a whole question of what quality of contraceptives are they providing in the global south. And there was this very interesting article which basically argues that some of the pharma giants, they are, uh, with, they've been asked to remove certain drugs from countries in the, no in the global north because they do not meet the standards. And now they're dumping these reproductive uh, medicines, these drugs in the global south. So there's also this entire political economy of family planning that we need to be mindful about. And just want to end by saying we must not pit, just to reinforce what Wendy was saying, we must not uh, pit women's reproductive rights against the future of the planet. Because if we put it that way, then women's reproductive rights is an area which is already seeing a lot of backlash by some of the most powerful governments. Uh, we'll see further backlash. And without respecting a human rights framework, my fear is that we are not going anywhere. Okay, thank you. Karina? Yeah, I just want to respond to that. I think we have to be, we always have to keep at the forefront of our minds the past policies, the unsavory policies that have pitched population in a certain way, that have gone towards population control. But while keeping that in the forefront of our minds, we have to be able, we have to move forward and we have to move beyond that and we have to be in charge of shaping that narrative. So we have to create an alliance of organizations that have rights-based approaches. That's exactly what our organization, Market Practice, has done. It's brought together a global alliance of 160 organizations from around the world, from the sexual reproductive health and rights sectors and the environmental sectors, who recognize the importance of barriers to family planning for the well-being of women and girls, but also for the planet. Because the reality is that this link is being made. So the important 
thing to keep in mind is that we need to be part of shaping that narrative. Those linkages are being made, as I mentioned, uh, recent research like Project Drawdown. Um, those girls' education and family planning, they do, the solutions, the way they are modeled, they do absolutely model the differential in emissions between countries. So any solution that they model takes that into consideration. These are, these are solutions that begin and end with rights, so let that not be mistaken. Secondly, uh, you, you mentioned taking away reproductive health, reproductive rights away from the climate sphere. That is happening increasingly because the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the scientific panel, the IPCC, that informs the uh, United, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change has um, said that family planning, voluntary rights-based family planning, is eligible for climate adaptation funding because family planning, in addition to being part of a package of reproductive health services that is essential for women and girls is also seen to improve women's agency and their ability to adapt to climate change. So if we want women to be part of the solution to climate change, that is not saying that the, the responsibility and the weight of adapting to climate change is on women and girls alone. That's not at all what this is about. But if we want to empower them and bring them along in the process, this is something that is eligible for climate change funding. That hasn't translated into action on the ground, but there is an opportunity to do that. And if we think of reproductive health being marginalized in in the, inter, in the international development agenda, this is a way to keep it in the mainstream. And this is our, also an opportunity as a reproductive health sector to be part of that discussion. We're working closely with the Department for International Development, the Department for the Environment, um, Food and Rural Affairs, and a new COP president to get this on the agenda so that rights-based solutions are on the agenda because let me tell you, refrigeration isn't about, or uh, other solutions that get talked about much more in the media, it doesn't have women and girls and their well-being um, you know, front and center, where other solutions, more human-based solutions, definitely are. So I think we need to be part of that discussion rather than be so afraid of our past that we can't be part of the future solutions. Okay, thank you. Did anyone else want to respond to that point before we move on? Yes, Wendy? Sorry. Um, I just wanted to point out that I am completely supportive of a rights-based approach to reproductive rights. But part of the problem with thinking about reproductive rights and climate change or population in the same um, conceptual framework is a failure to acknowledge that you are dealing with different levels of research. When demographers conceptualize the population, it's a macro entity. We look at population pyramids. We look at dependency ratios. What individuals do gets lost. The target becomes these uh, ways of measuring the macro. And the way to get the macro often is achieved by manipulating the micro. And you're not going to change the macro just by addressing rights. So many of these things don't join up, and although there's often a lot of rhetoric of rights, if the target is the population as it is conceptualized as a macro entity and operationalized as a macro entity with indicators, and those become the target of policy, it's very easy to lose sight of individuals. And the same thing can happen with climate. We look at the climate in terms of emissions, we look at the climate in terms of all kinds of other indicators, and when you think at the macro level, uh, the individual gets lost, and that is a real risk for keeping rights in sight. 
Okay, thank can you. I, can I just add yes, something? Yes, of course comments? you can. So for, from an environmental perspective, I think um, I absolutely agree that we need to separate any conversation about population and reproductive rights from climate change. And I think that the connection between these two issues is really interesting because from my perspective, it is really lifestyles and resource uses and consumption that is the main question. And so I find it very curious that there is still conversation about limiting population um, potentially through really coercive practices rather than doing something like limiting consumption. And so I would just put that provocation out there that I think there is, in a lot of ways, people are more comfortable with thinking about um, doing something away from them than the fact that, like, perhaps we might have to not have cars or completely change our lifestyle in a dramatic way. Um, and so why are we more comfortable about talking about the potential of forced sterilizations than the potential of people in the global north not having cars? Can I have one other thing? Okay, just, Wendy and then... I, just one, one phrase. <laughs> well, at the same time, saying that people in Europe should have more children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. And so I think the underlying elephant in the room also is that this is a very racialized discourse, that it's about uh, focusing on people away from the policymakers in the global north, and we can say, like, oh, those people whose populations are growing, they're a problem, rather than if you look at any calculations of eco-footprints or any ways of measurement, your, your uh, quote or your citation about, like, carbon emissions for how many weeks? of a British Two weeks kids. for British yes. is equal to a year for an African. Yeah, so this is shocking, right? And so if we look at that kind of disparity, why are we talking about this at all in terms of reproduction rather than lifestyle and race? Okay, did you want to say something still, Karina? Mm -hmm. Yeah, real quick. One thing just on when the uh, target of a program or of a project on the ground becomes population, I think... <laughs> I sit on the steering committee of the UK SRHR network, and actually we do a lot of work in monitoring um, DFIDs, uh, international programs, and whenever something comes up as a, you know, something uh, comes up in a country program that has a target around total fertility rate, that is always flagged, and that doesn't go ahead. That's a part of the advocacy that we do. Um, so that's something very important. That kind of monitoring needs to be done and, and is, an important, um, is an important area of work. Two, consumption versus numbers of people. I don't think it's either or. If we're really addressing the climate change crisis or climate emergency, however you want to call it, it's both. We have to address consumption, but we also can't be naive and think that the numbers on the planet don't don't affect the planet. That's not to say that there should be a right number of people. That absolutely is not the case because that where what's the right number? That just goes down a horrible trail. But we also need to be very conscious of the fact that numbers do matter, and that's why it matters which population tra trajectory are we on. Are we on the low variant? Are we on the medium variant? Or are we on the high variant? So if we can respond to people's needs, that means empowering women and girls who would like reproductive health services, not those who don't, but those who want them and cannot get them because of a series of barriers. If that puts the world on a certain trajectory, it's the medium variant or the low variant, rather than the high variant, then, then that is a win-win. And that doesn't that, there isn't a space for coercive policies within that. 
Okay, thank you. Yamani? Um, just two quick points. One, I think the only modeling that has been done on this issue is by IPCC. Uh, and in their modeling exercise, while population was one of the variables, the use of population as a variable has been challenged. So I just want to say that there is actually very little research on this. And my second point is that these threats are real. In fact, just in the first week of February, a week ago, uh, in the Indian Parliament, a bill was introduced which talks about the need for controlling population for all kinds of reasons, including climate crisis. I mean, they don't use the word climate crisis, but the description is pretty clear. And it talks about a whole range of incentives and disincentives, including tax incentives, for, for instance. And then at the end, there is tucked in a thing about uh, punitive, pun uh, puni punitive provisions. Right? So uh, these, these threats are actually resurfacing, and there are several uh, judgments that I can cite where women have been denied even basic things like maternity leave because it's the third child in a country like India, etc. So I just wanted to say these threats are so real that, and actually we are, um, given the global pushback on sexual and reproductive rights, I mean countries like U.S. are not even agreeing to the consensus that we had several years ago, so I am, I am frankly worried. Mm. Okay. Wendy? Um, I, I'm very glad that the total fertility rate gets flagged in the committee that you sit on, but it shows up in so many league tables and it gets discussed internationally to such a great extent. And even outside of the climate discussion, I find it really troubling that the World Bank uses the total fertility rate as an indicator of women's empowerment. I, I do think that these indicators do get used and abused in ways that actually make the individual get lost. Thank you. Any more points on that before we move on to our next question? Okay. So, are there lessons that reproductive rights movements and climate change movements can learn from each other, and how can they be mutually beneficial? So, who would like to respond to this first? Well, a couple of things. One, um, I think it's important for the climate change movement to realize that women are probably, and the women's movement, are probably their biggest ally in this struggle. So we have the example from Amazon where over 100 women have come together to form an Amazonian women's collective, which is trying to protect the Amazon forest, which protects the rest of the world. So I'm trying to say that instead of pitting these rights against each other, we have to realize that probably your biggest allies are the women's movement. Um, secondly, in terms of specific learnings, I think one is intersectionality. I think the women's movement has taught the world how to use an intersectionality framework, which is to say that there is no one axis of discrimination, that there are multiple axes of discrimination, and they all come together in an interlocked grid of power and privilege. Uh, and if we use this framework in the climate change analysis, we will realize that we are then forced to focus on the most marginalized, which is what we need to do, in an, especially so in a debate like this. Um, the second thing from the women's movement is the fact that this is so solidly grounded in human rights. So the importance of a rights-based approach, the importance of the indivisibility of rights. So you can't say you'll have all other rights, but I'm taking away your sexual and reproductive rights. So that's, again, an important message for the climate change movement. And the third thing is holding state and non-state actors accountable, which, again, is very relevant in the climate change crisis. And the last, which I think the climate crisis, the climate campaign does, the climate movement does, is the principle of participation, which is uh, nothing about us without us. So put the people at the front who are actually the worst, um, who are worst affected by this crisis. So just these couple of points that come to the top of my mind. Okay. Did you want to respond, Karina? Yes, if I may. Yeah. So as, as an organization, we work very much at the intersection between reproductive health and, it, and environmental conservation. The reason being... Reproductive health is scarcest. Or the information and the services are least available in the most rural and remote settings or what are called the last mile communities. 
Now, what we've seen in our research, but also other uh, UN, agency, UN environmental agencies and others' research, is that there is an overlap with those rural, remote communities having the least access to healthcare and facing, at the same time, the most complex and serious environmental challenges, including already seeing the effects of climate change. So what the reproductive rights movement has taught us is that access to information and services and the ability to exercise rights is fundamental to improving the health and the lives of women and girls. At the same time, the climate change movement knows and is starting to realize more and more the important role that women and girls can play in adapting to climate change and being part of the response. And they are recognizing that that is the right thing to do. So we spoke about the, the research that exists that, that already recognizes this, the UN um, Environmental Program, Global Environmental Outlook for two years running has recognized the importance of reproductive health and the whole package of reproductive health services. Project Drawdown has recognized the importance of health and education in addressing climate change. This is, this is something that's very powerful. Um, that I think we need to we need to take a stock of, and as we think of the UK hosting COP26 later this year, it's important that policymakers think of these kind of solutions in addition to the energy solutions, refrigeration, cars, etc. Okay, thank you. Anyone else want to say something? Yes, Wendy. I'll try and keep it brief. That's okay. That's um, fine. <laughs> I I am not a hundred percent on top of how climate change movements are organizing themselves. So I'm going to draw on lessons uh, from the reproductive rights movement, which I do know a bit more about. And we had some interesting discussions in the green room before um, we came out. I think. What I would say to people that are organizing as climate change activists is to actually look at the history of the reproductive rights movement uh, for what not to do. Because we have a lot of things that people did that came back to bite them. Uh, I'm going to use the word bedfellows because that seems to get used in all of the academic papers that get written about it. Uh, be careful who you get into bed with. Uh, the reproductive rights movement formed lots of alliances, which I think in retrospect were a bad idea, uh, the most prominent one being eugenics. Um, the reproductive rights movement uh, was a reaction to, but actually part of a shift in policy that really distracted a lot of attention away from structural problems. It was all about getting individuals to have fewer children and not actually paying attention to the environment in which those people were located and the structural obstacles that they faced. So the policy solution was to change individual behavior rather than to change the structures in which they lived. The reproductive rights movement focused almost exclusively on women which made it really hard when HIV came along because all of the infrastructure had been set up to deliver programs just to women um, and also define reproductive rights as an issue for women. And the final thing that I would mention is that when you violate people's rights, they remember it. And when coercive uh, population control policies were allowed to be put in place and do their damage. That's actually part of the reason why people didn't come forward and ask for help when HIV came along. Mm -hmm. And we struggled really hard to get the message across about HIV because nobody trusted us. So there's a lot that you can learn about who you form alliance with 
alliances with, how you package your messages, who you target, why you target them, how you justify that targeting, and whose problem it is. And I think you need to think about all of those things when you're thinking about climate, or you might have similar sorts of problems. Okay, did anyone want to respond to that point? I mean, just to add, I think that basically where we're going is that um, it needs to be a climate justice movement. It can't just be dealing with a climate change issue. And so climate change really needs to be dealt with through a lens of um, thinking about global relationships and disparities and history of structural inequalities that have produced the situation that we're at now and that any uh, movement that is not taking that type of justice-oriented perspective at its sort of center or core runs the risk of having this, making the same mistakes that a lot of other movements have. Okay, thank you. So our last question to our panelists then. Um, what does sustainability mean and for whom? What are our alternatives? What else can we imagine and what can individuals and collectives do? And Julia, if I could ask you to start with this one. Yeah, so I really, again, go back to thinking about resource use and consumption and end up with no other option other than leading towards some sort of movement of degrowth. I really have a very difficult time imagining that even if we were to collectively significantly reduce the global population, that that would actually have any impact on the environment because part of our um, idea of development and modernization is that we're actually trying to bring people in the global south to global north levels of consumption. And um, that if we were to do that and everybody were to live a lifestyle similar to somebody like me when I do my eco-footprint, uh, particularly based on, as an academic, doing a lot of international travel, it says that I need, if everybody lived like me, I would need four Earths. So um, I think that really when we're talking about this, it has to come down to absolutely changing our relationships to consumption, changing the way that we organize ourselves uh, socially and economically and politically. Okay. Um, was there something about the Ecuadorian movement that we talked about, you mentioned before? Um, oh, well, there's the Buen Vivir movement. So there's a lot of different... Um, there's a lot of different ways of sort of re-envisioning a relationship between people and the environment. And so um, a lot of these movements are focused on thinking about human development, not in terms of economic growth, but in instead in terms of uh, quality of life questions, not in terms of consumption, but instead in terms of having a positive relationship with the environment. And they all, there's like a number of different approaches coming from a variety of places in the world. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you. Does anyone like to respond to that? I can add something to that, yeah, if that's that, okay. That's fine, yeah. Um, I, I similarly think that we need to think about zero or negative growth, which is not very popular. Um, we use growth in GDP as an example of economic uh, well-being. But the reason we do that, um, my, my first degree and my PhD was in economics, uh, the standard for um, whether something is welfare, uh, wh whether something is efficient in terms of distribution in economics is often Pareto efficiency. Mm -hmm. And that basically means that you can't make anybody better off without making anyone worse off. And that's kind of how we approach global justice, and I think that's just not possible anymore. We are so rich and we consume so much in this part of the world and we're only willing to concede resources to others if we're not made worse off. 
And that's why we use GDP and GNP as the target for growth and development. But if we do that, we're basically just saying that we're unwilling to change ourselves and that the only way to change things is to consume more. So I think we need to really think about how we measure the economy, how we measure economic success, and how we, um, from a social justice perspective, think about efficient distribution. Yeah, I think I would maybe just take a step, zoom out a little bit, as it were. We're all operating within the Sustainable Development Goals and the 2030 Development Agenda, which was hailed as an innovative and as an integrated development agenda. Um, and we're supposed to achieve the goals in an integrated manner. And I, we hear that talked about a lot, but what that looks like in practice, I think we often find at the advocacy, at the policy, and at the programmatic level, people are less clear on how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, something like the climate emergency is a real is a real opportunity to do that, to address the concerns in We work in last mile communities, so I'm thinking of last mile communities, but and that's where it matters the most because those are the people being hit by climate change right now. So we need to offer solutions to them right now. So at the same time, it's it's not. I'm going to come back to this point. I don't believe it's either or. It's both the conservation of biodiversity and barrier free access to um, contraceptive counseling and services. They're mutually reinforcing elements of. of sustainability. It's the, the number of people and the actions of those people that are both fundamental elements of sustainable development. It's, I don't believe it's either or. Okay. Anyone else want to say anything before we open up to the floor? Yep. Yemeni? Um, in terms of sustainability, see the very nature of the problem is such that it's transboundary, transnational, right? So we do need countries to come together. We do need countries to come together and set targets which are compliant with IPCC um, targets. Uh, But countries have not caused this problem equally, right, either historically or even now. Uh, And therefore, I think it's just important to also put on the table the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, which means countries which have caused the problem uh, the most take the lead in becoming carbon-free in in bigger ways, that they provide uh, both financial and technological support to the developing countries. I don't think we can deny the fact that uh, the burgeoning middle class in countries like India and China are going to consume a lot more. Like, look at the example of air conditioning units in India. Uh, it's at 30 million right now and it's likely to become 1 billion so uh, middle class in the developing countries is also going to start consuming more and more and therefore I think there is no option other than greener technology, phasing out fossil fuels and ensuring that first world provides uh, technological and financial support to the developing countries which have actually caused the problems the least and I just want to end with the point that since we agree that inequality has is, the, is one of the main drivers of climate crisis. If we don't act in ways which respect human rights, I fear we're going to end up creating an even more unequal world, which will drive it further then. So I think we'll be caught in a circle unless and until we ensure that our approach is, is, is entirely human rights compliant. Okay, thank you. So we're now going to open um, to the floor for questions um, from the audience. Um, I'm going to take two or three questions at a time. Um, If you could let us know your name and affiliation and then wait for the stewards with the roving mics to get to you. Okay, um, lady in the blue top in the middle there. Hi, thanks. Um, 
my name is Heidi, and I am a PhD student in psychological and behavioral science here at the LSE, former oceanographer, very concerned about climate change, now working on how to change human behavior to be more sustainable. So with regard to population, unlike transportation, unlike energy sources, unlike our diet, we have options, alternative options that are so much better than what we do now. We don't really have options as far as reproduction. So um, how do you answer people who say the, the best thing we can do for the environment is to just have no children? I mean, obviously, if you play that out, um, what does that mean for the future of, of, of the human species? And, and how, how low can you go with, with, reproduc- with, with population and not have actually a backfire effect on, on human rights and human well-being? Okay, thank you. Um, in the front. Um, my name is Laurie Sochas. I'm a uh, PhD student in the Social Policy Department at LSE. Um, my question is about um, the sort of conceptual shifts back and forth between sexual reproductive health rights and family planning or contraceptive access. We know that sexual reproductive health rights include many other things, including uh, health around uh, menopause, concerns of infertility, which affect uh, very many uh, women and men um, in low- and middle-income countries, uh, sexual pleasure. So is there anything else apart from family planning and population control that overlaps with a win-win agenda with climate change? Or can we incorporate these other extremely important elements of reproductive health into the conversation? Great. Thank you. Any more questions? I saw some hands up. Uh, Thank you. My name is Alistair Curry, and I'm head of campaigns at Population Matters, a population advocacy organization. Um, I think this has been a really good discussion, and one of the things that's come out of it is, rightly, a lot of risks have been identified with with addressing population and seeking sustainable population. The question really is, is if you identify risk, does that mean that you shouldn't do anything at all, or should you you take measures which, uh, which... I take account of those risks, and our job is to do the job properly in terms of addressing uh, population within a human rights framework in ways that empower people. So rather than saying we can't do this at all because there are risks, it's about how we manage the risks. And as Karina said, this, is a, this, is, this, um, this, uh, this cat is already out of the bag. People are already talking about it, so the question is, how do we do it? And just two other brief points just to say, first of all, we haven't really touched on biodiversity here, although I know that Karina is working on that issue, but all of us who are concerned about the environment should be at least as terrified of our biodiversity crisis as we are of our climate crisis. Uh, and lastly, we've been focusing on, um, uh, on the issues of con- contraception access in the, develop- in the developing world in the global south, but we should remember that in places such as this, where most people have that, that access, we can make a choice about our family size. So it isn't simply a case of access. And when we talk about the inequalities and the disparities in consumption and impact here, then making that choice freely within the developed world is a positive part of looking at our population issues. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to ask the panellists to respond to those first three questions and we'll take some more afterwards. Um, So to the first question from Heidi, um, a couple of points there. Does anyone have something to respond to that? So you were asking about how low can we go was the last question. And forgive me, I forget the first part of the question, but perhaps you've got that. Yeah. Yeah, again, we have to, the starting point has to be barriers to family planning, barriers to family planning. 
so that's why, for example, our organization has tabled a motion. You're, um, I think you said you're an oceanographer and have a lot of background in environmental issues. We're the only organization with 50 years of family planning expertise who's also a member of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And we've actually tabled a motion which is going to be voted on the, for the first time in 30 years. A motion on the barriers to family planning is going to be voted on at the International Union for the Conservation of Nature because barriers to family planning are very relevant to the rights of women and girls and to their well-being, but also very relevant to enabling sustainable conservation. So the starting point, if the starting point is barriers to family planning, then you don't even go down that path. And the reason we've tabled a motion is because it is important to shape the narrative. You mentioned identifying the risk and engaging with this. It is important to engage with this from a very rights-based perspective and ensure that that frames the narrative, that that translates into policy. And as you'll know, if a motion is tabled at the IUCN and it passes, it becomes global environmental policy. So if barriers to family planning and the importance of removing barriers to, fa barriers to family planning is recognized as an issue relevant for women and girls and communities, but also for the well-being of biodiversity, then that narrative starts to change very, very dramatically. Okay. Yes, Julia? I just, I want to continually push back against the connection between population and the environment. Mm. I think this is just a very dangerous path to go on, which is not saying that I don't think that reproductive health matters. It is just that I'm very concerned about this being conflated. I think questions of biodiversity, I would again direct back to what Yamini said, I think, at the very beginning mm. about corporations. And so I think that if we're talking about, like, what parts of um, right now the global economy or the way that humans organize ourselves now is the, the biggest threat to biodiversity. And I think it's a lot of huge corporate production processes. I think it is a lot of agribusiness. I think it is, there's a lot of various different things that I would direct our attention to with respect to dealing with biodiversity or environmental problems that I think are really, really significant. And I would instead want to say, like, why do we keep going back to population rather than going to like some of the main causes that are really concerning from an environmental perspective. Hold on, um, Wendy first, yeah. Um, I, I think some of what I was going to say has just been covered, but I, I was struck by uh, your reference to the best thing you can do is to have no children. Uh, no, no, that, that phrase, that phrase. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I wasn't saying that you... <laughs> yeah, the logical I, conclusion. <laughs> I... I, I <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying that, that that stuck in my mind. I wasn't attributing it to you or saying that that was, it just jumped out at me. I, I find that very interesting because it does illustrate this idea of the link between fertility and climate in a really interesting way. So I have done the best thing for the planet. I've had no children. <laughs> I don't really think that that probably is the best thing I could have done for the planet. I fly way too much. I have a very resource-intensive lifestyle. Have you seen the state of British housing? Uh, it's been cold lately. I have a gas boiler. I, I can come up with a huge list of things, but by focusing on how many children I have, we don't look at those. And it's, it's the bringing the population into the climate argument that then distracts from all of the other horrible things that I'm doing to damage the planet, but I can feel good about myself because I'm child-free. Okay, thank you. And to um, Laura's question about reproductive rights, she was asking um, um, other aspects of reproductive rights like menopause and infertility and sexual pleasure. How does that play into this? You wanted to come in? No, why don't you finish yeah. and then I'll 
No, I, I had finished. Okay. Um, I just wanted to respond to all the comments together. First, I would also disagree with the fact that we don't have options. As I was mentioning, it is a conscious choice of big banks to invest in fossil fuel and to underwrite those assets, which are, as I was giving you the statistics, that causes the maximum damage. So look at our lifestyles. I mean, the point that is already. So I just wanted to challenge, push us a bit more on the fact that there are no other options other than the having no child option. I also want to say that my, um, and this is Amnesty's position as well, I'm not saying that there is no link between population and, um, uh, and, and, uh, and the per capita emission. I'm saying that that link, uh, focusing on that, detracts us from the real issue, and the real issue is somewhere else, and the elephant in the room and all the conversations that we've been having. Um, and the third point about sexual and reproductive health, I think I totally agree. I mean, the focus is so much on family planning. How about LGBTI rights? Mm. How many countries would sign up to accepting, to ensuring that LGBTI rights are recognized? What about rights to abortion? WHO say that 40% of uh, women in reproductive ages live in countries with reproductive, uh, with, uh, co with restrictive abortion laws. So they do not have access to abortion, right? So there's so much more that needs to be done here that I agree that we need to look at it in its entirety. Um, and just to say that my colleagues who work on reproductive, um, sexual and reproductive rights would argue that there is really no such thing as non-coercive population control because the thing that population control, the, the framework of population control in and, of, in and of itself becomes coercive at some stage. I mean, maybe others would disagree and that's fine. We're not against totally, we're totally not against provision of sexual and reproductive health services. All that we're saying is that that has to be done in a rights framework and that unless and until you build the capacity of the woman to be able to take these decisions about when to have children, when not to have children, when to go for an abortion, when not to go for an abortion, just the mere provision of contraceptions alone might not suffice. Okay, I'm going to take some more questions now. Can I? You'll go on then quickly. I just wanted yeah. to respond to Laura. Yeah. Because um, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going question by question. Uh, Laura, I, I would kind of flip around what you said. Rather than say, could we look at climate and figure out whether we can actually expand the definition of reproductive health to include all the things that have been excluded, I kind of flip it around and say, by actually linking uh, reproductive health with other things, with these win win synergy arguments, we've ended up with a very narrow. Uh, operationalization of a very rich definition of reproductive health. And that's what worries me. We were, go we were concerned about uh, population because it was linked to development and the demographic dividend, and that was about getting people in poor countries to have fewer children. We were, we're now concerned about it from a, a more climate perspective. But when it gets linked in that way, the aspects of reproductive health that then don't fit that synergy get lost. Uh, we haven't done a whole lot that I'm aware of to promote infertility in poorer countries. And I think that's extraordinarily telling if what we are saying is that the reproductive health programs, which they have been since Cairo, and we aren't treating sexually transmitted diseases, which to me is not as explicit as people saying, well, you know, if a few people become sterile because we've inserted IUDs really quickly, that's not such a big deal. I think if you're not that concerned about STDs, which are sterilizing, you're probably thinking the same thing, or it's not a priority. And it's that narrowing of the definition that happens when you use things instrumentally that has consequences. Yeah, I also just, I'm just going to put this out there. I'd be curious to hear what other people think. Um, I, it seems like also in linking these two, you sort of almost make climate change a woman's problem. 
in the sense that, like, as you were saying, you have done, like, your, your bit for climate change by not having children. And so I think also when we, t when we link reproductive rights and we make this into a very gendered thing, there's also an inadvertent connection between climate change there that I'm concerned about. Okay, thank you. I'm going to take some more questions. I think there was some at the front. Okay, um, women in green, then women in pink, and I'm going to take yours over here, gentlemen in black. Hi, hi. Um, am I audible? Uh, my name is Vera. I'm also from Population Matters, an organisation which does not believe in population control, but which does link um, population growth with the climate crisis. And I'd say to Yamini, you are very sanguine at the prospect of global population rising to 11 billion by the end of the century. Had you taken on board that there, are, there is already a dire shortage of water in parts of the world and also that the planet is shrinking, the habitable planet is shrinking? And um, I would also ask whether nudging is a form of coercion um, when it comes to, climate, uh, to population control. Uh, I'd ask that of various members of the panel. Hi, um, thanks for coming tonight. It's so interesting to see a panel of all females, so it's very inspirational. Um, I'm Ursula, I work in ESG at KPMG, and I am directing my question probably towards Julia and Wendy with regards to support of the degrowth agenda. Um, I appreciate it's a really attractive answer to the climate crisis for all the you know, clear points that you're making. Um, but it's a very difficult message to sell, in particular to the private sector and also the governments who are largely responsible and probably most capable at sort of providing a solution and investing in green technologies um, to get to a swift response to climate change as well. So I guess it would be, um, do you believe that the degrowth agenda is the only way or are you optimistic that there is another um, sort of effort in sort of the use of green technology and that investment so that we can, I guess, have our cake and eat it. <laughs> okay, and the gentleman over here. Um, I'm Nick Yao from Shanghai. I taught there for 10 years and I just uh, uh, got sacked because I spoke up against academic uh, corruption. Uh, my question is, there is a tendency that rich and well-educated people tend to have less children than the less educated people just like Wendy and she's spending her whole life educating other people's children. Um, do we need to address this issue and what we can do? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so who would like to respond? Yeah, Karina. Start. Yeah, I think. Thank you for bringing up that point about level, the link the, or the correlation between levels of education and number of children. That is invariably true. Women, when they have access to education and they are empowered and they can choose when they want to have children, how, as and when they want to go to school, they can start engaging in income generating activities, they can engage in natural resource management, and programmatic examples and research on the ground shows that this is invariably true. This is true everywhere. They choose to have fewer children. They're not coerced into having fewer children. They choose. This is a truth about you. I think what's significant, you said you chose uh, to have zero children. I think everyone should be able to choose how many children they would like 
when they want to have them and with whom they want to have them. But we take our right to choose for granted because I can choose here. I work in a reproductive health clinic in Archway. I can choose to have an appointment to get contraception if I want. I can choose not to take that appointment and I can choose not to take contraception. The point of the woman in southwest Uganda who told us that she has eight children because the nearest clinic is a four-hour walk away, which means she has to give up a days of wages. She doesn't know what to do with her children. She has no time to do her housework. That is not a choice. She is faced with a myriad of barriers to family planning. The issue in that community in southwest Uganda is that the human communities are growing at a rate at which the wetlands around them where the gray crown cranes, which is the national bird of Uganda, nests. So that crane is going to become extinct because the only piece of land that the gray crown crane can nest in is a wetland. So that species will become extinct. At the same time, this woman is facing these issues. Now, can you see the link? This woman has come to organizations and to the clinics around her working there to say that this is her, this is her express wish she would like to be able to take control of her body, to not have to have the number of children that she does not choose. Every woman and every couple should choose how many children they would like to have, but they need to be able to choose. We take that, the exercise of that right for granted. That is not so for 232 million women and girls in developing countries, plus those in developed countries. That's what this is about, those women's rights. That they have no rights. So if we're talking about rights here, we need to think about their rights as well because their rights aren't being listened to. And if we have the opportunity to go into another sector's advocacy forum, such as the climate change agenda, then let's take that because reproductive health is more and more marginalized because of Trump's gag rule, because of uh, policies in other countries that are of, similar, of a similar style in nature. Then we need to take that and we need to own that narrative. Okay, thanks, Karina. In the interest of time, let's try and cover the other questions. So anything about the degrowth alternatives? Um, well, I, no, I... Fine, answer what you want. I, We've got I, two I more minutes. Follow, I could follow on from just what, what other people had said. Yeah. Um, the rich people have less children is an example of what I was talking about, where we were looking at individuals and not looking at structures. Mm -hmm. The reason rich people have fewer children is because we have an economy and we have social structures that are set up that think about work in a particular way that make it really hard for people who have lots of credentials that allow them to cash in on participating in the economy at, uh, with a high opportunity cost for having children. And I sat in on a meeting about egg freezing a couple years ago, and I found it absolutely fascinating that everybody thought egg freezing was such a great strategy, and nobody was talking about why the economy is organized in a way that people want to freeze their eggs. Yeah. And what? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Where, where's the problem? I, and it's like, oh, we want, we, these are highly educated women. They should be having children. Let's pump them with hormones, freeze their eggs, and get them to have babies, rather than look at where the problem is. I, I just don't quite get that. Um, and I'm going to say something very contentious. Can I end with something contentious? <laughs> You've been warned. Um, I absolutely support people's access to education, but I really want to emphasize that there are lots of power structures 
uh, behind how certain policies get delivered. And education historically was seen as a really good way to turn girls in the global south into modern subjects, to basically make them more individualistic, uh, to break down family relationships, to promote the idea of a two-child family, and there's lots of literature where people who were less uh, circumspect than they might be today actually publicly said that was what they wanted to do by educating children. And while I'm totally in favor of education, I think we need a curriculum which is rights-based and is about choice rather than about turning people into subjects that look like the global north. And I just wanted to add one other thing to the racialized discourse. There's also the idea, you said climate change might be women, women's problem, but actually that racialized discourse turns it into men controlling women. It also turns and caricaturizes men in the global south as people who are controlling and forcing women to have more children that they, than they want. And I think all of those discourses are things we need to be very attentive to if we're really concerned about rights and global justice. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much to our speakers. We're going to have to stop there. Um, that was a fascinating discussion, which I hope everybody enjoyed. Um, if this panel has piqued your interest, there are actually two related upcoming LSE events. So the Global Health Initiative are hosting a community screening of Damon um, Gamu's 2040 um, movie here in, in this building, in the Thai Theatre, on Wednesday the 11th from 6 to 7.30. And um, I'm hosting some environment and women's health multidisciplinary and multi-sector workshops. Fun. And there's one at the LSE at the 10th of June and we're calling for participants still. So lastly, the LSE Research Festival isn't yet over, even though it feels like it. There's one more day. Um, so there's more exciting events taking place tomorrow, so please be sure to have a look in your programme. And please join me in thanking the speakers.